Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. All right, are you ready for the word? Tap somebody next to you, tell them, buckle up, it's gonna be good today. It's gonna get all up in your grill, all up in your face. We're gonna have some fun. So we, uh, we've been in this series for the last couple of weeks. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, we'll catch you up to speed. Um, we've been studying through the book of Galatians, uh, a short letter that the Apostle Paul writes to this young church in a bit of a theological crisis. And we're calling the series Bewitched, Good News Gone Bad. And I know that sounds like a, you know, a, a heathen way to title the series, but that is actually a biblical word. So let me give you the main scriptures we get in today, which is where we get this word bewitched from. Uh, he says, uh, Paul says in Galatians chapter three, verse one, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course you didn't. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be after starting your new lives in the Spirit? Why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? And as I've said every single week, you can see the Apostle Paul's frustration here in those last two lines of his paragraph where he begins to say, you started off so strong, you were doing well, you believed the gospel, and then you begin to stray from it. See, see, Paul had established the Galatian church on this very simple premise, the gospel of Jesus Christ, Ephesians 2.8, that we are saved by grace through faith. Nothing we bring to the table really matters. Even on our best day, our righteousness is like filthy rags. But at the end of the day, Jesus came for broken and hurting people, and we place our trust in his sufficient sacrifice on that cross, and that faith alone is what saves us. And that was the gospel that, that Paul established this church on. But then this group of Jews came in and they began to teach what he calls an anti-gospel or a perverted gospel. They begin to, to go back to their old way of thinking and suggest that our actions or our merit is what ultimately allows us to be saved and accepted by God. And so Paul comes and he writes this letter as a correction to the Galatian church, reminding them that it is all about grace. As we've said every single week, we were called by grace, we are saved by grace, and we are sustained by grace. That is the purity of the gospel. And we've been talking about that grace quite a bit for the last few weeks. In week one, we talked about the legitimacy of the gospel of grace. Uh, and in week two, we talked about protecting the purity of the gospel of grace and how we can't allow other things to marinate their way into our mix. Uh, and then last week, we titled the message, The Moment, and we talked about how important it is for us to have a personal encounter with the reality of God's grace. Today, as we continue on into chapter two, uh, we're gonna hear from Paul as he warns us about a trap that the Galatian church fell into and a trap that I think the church might fall into even these days, and that is the trap of something he calls meaningless grace, meaningless grace. And as we get into that, I, I do wanna offer a bit of a disclaimer, and it might be obvious by now, but if you've been attending for the last few weeks or following along online, it might feel like some of these sermons are a bit repetitive. Like we're just talking about the same thing over and over again. Grace, 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 grace. Ugh. Guy's just up there in a different blouse and a new pair of skinny jeans every week with no new content, you know, I get it. It's a men's shirt, all right? But the reason this content feels so repetitive, not just in this book, read through the New Testament and it is everywhere in there. And that, the reason grace is so prevalent in the New Testament is because there's an ever-present need to come back to center, to remind ourselves of the gospel. 
The problem the church has faced in Galatia and the problem the church has faced throughout history is that we seem to stray from this simple gospel of grace. If history has taught, has taught us anything, it's that sometimes the most challenging thing we can do is simply believing the same message we placed our faith in at the beginning of this journey with Christ, that it is him and him alone who saves us. And so if this sounds repetitive, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> I'm gonna to continue to preach this every single week and I will be unapologetically repetitive with this topic if it means that we can be anchored in the purity of the gospel and we do not stray from the fact that it is Jesus plus nothing else that saves us today. That's what this gospel is all about. So with that in mind, uh, let's, let's talk about meaningless grace. Uh, so as we start out here in Galatians chapter two, verse 11, here's the backdrop. Uh, the Apostle Paul is recounting a, a bit of an argument he has with one of the other apostles, a guy named Peter, who seems to make a mistake when it comes to grace. He started out well, but he made some decisions that offended a group of people and displayed how inappropriately some of us respond to the grace of God, which is ultimately why Paul accuses him of treating the grace as meaningless. So here's where it starts out in verse 11. He says, when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised, but afterward, when some of his friend, friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas, that guy Barnabas, even he was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now, I don't know if you do this when you read scripture, but sometimes when I read the Bible, like, I kind of imagine a certain person's voice as they're reading through scripture. And when I read through this passage of scripture, I imagine like a really annoying teenage girl kind of telling this story. Just maybe you can follow along with me for a moment. He's like, you know, when Peter first got here, he used to sit at this table and eat with all of us. And we were all friends. But then all of a sudden when the friends of James showed up, Peter didn't want anything to do with this anymore. So he went, so at the cool kids, at the cool kids table, and he wanted to be over there with them. And even Barnabas left all of us. And we were over here alone and offended. And I'm writing stuff about him on Instagram. What a jerk. That's what I see when I read through the scripture. Now, if this story sounds familiar, it's because you've heard it before. You've seen it. It was in a movie called Mean Girls with a guy named Lindsay Lohan. And it's the famous lunchroom scene, right? Where there's a table of friends that have brought Lindsay in. And when she was the new girl from Africa to the school, they were like, we will be your friends, even though nobody else loves you. But then one day she's walking with her, her lunch across the cafeteria. Another table invites her to sit down and she has to make a decision. Am I going to go with my faithful friends or am I going to sit at the cool kids table? And what does she choose? Well, she sits at the cool kids table. And so her friends stand up in front of the whole student body and they rebuke her. And that's exactly what happens here. <laughs> In an Oscar-worthy performance, the Apostle Paul stands up and he begins to rebuke Peter in front of God and everybody. He says, you and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like these Gentiles, yet we know that a person is justified by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified because of our faith in Christ, not because we've obeyed the law. For no one will ever be justified by obeying the law. Are you catching the pattern of his words here? <laughs> Three times, the apostle Paul is making it incredibly clear, hey, you've missed it, Peter. You've gone back to a broken mindset, an old way of thinking that suggests the only way to be made right with God is to follow this list of man-made rules. But I'm reminding you, in front of everybody, it's faith and it's faith alone that makes us right with God. And after he's rebuked Peter in front of this ent entire lunchroom of, of friends, he gives this kind of dagger of a mic drop statement. And you're like, yeah, here's what he says. 
I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless like you do, Peter. If keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. I will not treat the grace of God as meaningless. Now, you might be asking why there's two tables up here. I think that this whole scenario that we're seeing played out in scripture is ultimately a tale of two tables. Two tables that some of us might find ourselves sitting at today. And so if you're a note taker, that's what I'd like to title this chat. I'd like to title it, A Tale of Two Tables. So let me pray and uh, we'll jump in. Jesus, help us today. Help us to receive your word with open hearts, with open minds. God, as we, as we go to the scriptures, and although they are a couple thousand years old and they're telling stories of things that have happened well before we were ever on this planet, I pray that you would personalize them, that you would bring them into application for our current season, our current context, and that ultimately at the end of this, Jesus would be revealed to every single person in here. We wanna see you, we wanna experience you, we wanna be transformed by your word before we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen, 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 amen. Uh, I don't know if this has ever happened to you before, but um, I think it's happened to me a few times in life, and it's one of the most uncomfortable feelings on the planet. But have you ever walked into a social setting, maybe it's a party for work or an event or something to that extent, and food is involved, and when you walk into a room without even realizing that this is going to happen, you, you begin to see those little name tags on the table, and it's one of those assigned seating events. Has this ever happened to anybody before? And immediately as you see those little name tags on the seats, you have this moment of paranoia and insecurity. They're like, oh, stink, who did they sit me next to? I don't, I don't know if I have the emotional equity to invest in a meaningless conversation for the next two hours. And it's, has that happened to anybody else? Before you can be honest in church, it's fine, yeah, okay. I think that probably one of the worst places for that to happen is a wedding especially a wedding where you don't know anybody else except for maybe the bride and groom and a couple of the people in the bridal party, but you don't know the family members, you don't know the friends. And there's that moment where you walk into that dining room and you're like, oh man, who did they sit me next to? I don't know who if I have in me to have this conversation for the next few hours. Um, that happens to me a lot. Um, as a pastor, not to brag, I get invited to a lot of weddings. Um, usually it's because I'm officiating them, <laughs> not because anyone cares to invite me to their wedding. They just need my services. So, uh, I generally end up at a lot of weddings. And, and the thing about pastoring a young church is that many people have found Christ here at the Father's house. And so their friends and their family members, uh, their BC days, if you will, uh, most of them don't attend church yet. Or maybe they came from another area of the country and they moved here and so their family doesn't live here. But usually when I perform a wedding, uh, perform a wedding, that's a weird thing, isn't it? <laughs> I performed. Uh, when I officiate a ceremony, uh, I don't know anybody except for the bride and groom and maybe a few of their friends from the church that happen to be in the bridal party. And inevitably, here's how it goes down every single time. We'll conclude the, the service and, and then I'll say, hey, thank you guys for joining us today. And the bride and groom are gonna go take pictures for the next five and a half hours while all of us wait to eat. Um, why don't you grab your chair and head out to the open bar and enjoy yourself? And so then there's that moment where I walk into the dining area, whether it's outside or inside, and I have that insecurity, who did they sit me next to? Because here's the deal. As a pastor, for whatever reason, I don't get to be a part of the bridal party. I think it's wrong, but I don't get to sit at the head table with everybody else. And I'm like, I did way more work than anybody else up there. I'm the one talking and I'm the one doing the prep, but you guys just stood there, you didn't do nothing, but I don't get to sit at the table with you guys and go first to the food line. Well, I've known him for 30 years. Well, I helped them cut covenant before God. All right, come on. But no. And I'm not family. 
even though I invited you into my family, the family of God here at the Father's house, but that's fine. So I don't get to sit at the family table. Remember that last value of ours, become family? Yeah, not if you're the pastor. So I don't get to sit at the head table and I don't get to sit at the family table and they don't know where to put me. And so inevitably I end up somewhere in the back of the room with all the other guests who didn't really want to invite, but you felt obligated to invite. And most of the time, it's your most messed up friends and relatives that are sitting in the back of the room. And I get it. You're like, oh, put the pastor back there. Brad, Johnny, he needs Jesus. And maybe the pastor be able to fix that dude before the, the rest of the ceremony is out. And I'm like, yeah, between his frequent trips to the bar and his gyrating to the wobble on the dance floor, I'll come over. Oh, would you like to know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Like, no, come on. It's just me venting here today. Okay, yeah. So if you invite me to your wedding and I... And I say, I'll be there for the ceremony, but I have something to do during the reception. Now you know why. <laughs> it's a little awkward for me. I, I, I don't like sitting at a table where I feel like I don't belong or a table where I don't know how I was surrounded by these people. Maybe that's a wrong thing to say as a pastor, but there's something about sitting at a table where you feel like you don't belong, where you're stuck, where you're assigned, and you just wish you were somewhere else. And... I wonder how many of us today, as we sit in this room, to get a little more serious here, I wonder how many of, many of us would say, I feel like I might be sitting at the wrong table right now. And I'm not talking about the wedding table, and I'm not talking about the work table or the party, the event. I'm talking about in the spirit. How many of us feel like we are sitting in the wrong space? We long to be at another table. We long to be around a different group of people but for whatever reason, we find ourselves assigned, our name tag on a table, incapable of moving to where we truly desire to be. I wonder how many of us find ourselves there today. Let me elaborate. So, so Paul tells the story of Peter ultimately sitting at the wrong table. He, he made a decision that landed him at the wrong table. This one was of his own making. Unlike the assignment, he chose to sit at the wrong table. But... The table he decided to sit at was one that Paul calls meaningless grace. That is the phrase he uses to describe Peter's actions. Uh, as a reminder, I'll go back to our text here for a moment, but he says in Galatians 2.21, do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. So according to Paul, there's, there's people who are trying to follow the rules to make their appeal to God based on their performance. And when they live in such a way, they make his grace meaningless. There's meaningful grace, there's true grace, it's by faith, or there's grace that has become meaningless because of our attempts to please God in our own efforts. It is a tale of two tables. So today, I have each of those tables for us. A meaningless grace table, and a true grace table. And like Peter, all of us have a choice. We get to determine which of these two tables we're going to sit at. But according to him, that choice is made by the way that we treat God's grace. He says, I will not treat the grace of God as meaningless. So the question I would like to pose to us for the next couple of moments as we discuss these two tables is simple. How am I treating grace? How have I treated the grace of God? Have I treated it in a meaningless way? 
or have I treated it as it deserves? How am I responding to the grace? Now, you'll notice that at this table, the meaningless grace table, there are three chairs. Uh, that is because I believe that there are three general responses to grace that make it meaningless. You'll also notice that one looks a little different than the others. You'll discover why in just a moment, but I would just like to thank the Lord that we meet at a Masonic building and I have an endless supply of props. Thank you, Jesus. You'll also notice that there's a single chair at the true grace table, and that's because there's only one way to get to this table. So which of these two are we sitting at today? Let's start over here. So before we get into these three different chairs, uh, let me set some groundwork. Paul tells us that the, the core reason people end up at the meaningless grace table is because they have this idea that the only way to be made right with God is through following some rules. He calls the phrase obeying the law. Now, I wanna, I wanna define that if I could for a moment because usually when our 21st century brains hear a phrase like obeying the law, we start thinking about you know, written laws and governing structures and you know, things like don't speed on the highway, don't text and drive, pay all of your taxes. But, but Paul is not suggesting that we should avoid those laws to prove that we're righteous. You know? Just speed on the highway, text every time you drive, just to prove that you're truly saved. Although if speeding on the highway and texting while driving were acts of righteousness, then some of y'all are super saved. Um, and so am I. But that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about man-made laws to govern society. He's talking about the Jewish law, specifically this law that the Jews had created of their own making, these ancillary commands that they added on to the Ten Commandments that were made by men so that people could feel like they were superior to others. If you lived by this set of rules and you lived by this set of standards and, and, and you did what we said you should do before God, then he would be accepting of you while he rejected all the other people on the planet, specifically those Gentiles over there, those dirty, filthy, stinky Gentiles. And they had a whole list of rules, things like uh, dietary restrictions and ceremonial washing of silverware and platters and all this stuff. Specifically, the one that we read about a lot here in Galatians is circumcision, the ever fun subject to talk about in church. But that's the one apparently that the apostle Peter had such a problem with. He went to go sit at the cool kids table because all those guys were circumcised. I'm not gonna sit at the uncircumcised table, which is a bit of an awkward entry fee to a table. Wouldn't you agree? Like you think it's an invasion of your medical privacy to ask if you've been vaccinated for COVID to get into a restaurant. Imagine the investigative process on this one a little bit. I'm sorry, only circumcised people are allowed and we're gonna need to prove it. Uh... <laughs> Awkward. But I digress. So, if it was all about following Jewish law, then we probably don't need to talk about this because that's not really something we're working with today, right? Like we don't have, no, no one's worried about going to heaven because they washed their dishes the wrong way or because they eat, ate bacon or something, right? Like that's, we're not worried about those sorts of things. But I think the, the heart behind their problem still exists in humanity. The, the idea that our actions somehow make us more acceptable to God. And so if I could for a moment, and I'd like to exchange obeying the law with a different phrase that might be a bit more applicable to our setting, and that is performance-based Christianity. This idea that my performance is ultimately what lands me at the right table. And performance-based Christianity is ultimately what causes us to sit in some of these chairs. So let's start with the first chair, the chair that Peter found himself in, and the chair that looks so much different than the rest of these, the chair of pride. 
The reason this one looks like a throne is because there's a lot of people that like to sit on their own throne. The, the, the pride chair is the chair that feels like it deserved a spot at the table. The chair that feels like my actions, my own righteousness rightfully landed me at the God table. The prideful person generally looks down on others and seems to elevate themselves. And sometimes they vocalize it, other times they don't. Sometimes it could be subtle, other times it could be overt. Many of us have had conversations with prideful Christians who seem to like to talk about other people and seem to like to elevate themselves, but sometimes it has nothing to do with your words. Sometimes it has everything to do with your opinions, the things that you don't say, that disdainful look on that person living in that lifestyle or that situation or the way that they responded to that. It's just that look, that judgment in the eyes that can make us prideful. And the great irony of pride is that the pride chair is one where people begin to make their own pecking order for sin. They determine what sins are acceptable and which sins are not. And ultimately, the ones that they're committing are the ones that they think God is fine with. But the ones that other people are committing are the ones that they feel are the most egregious. They create a ranking system for sin. So they'll sit in this chair and they'll look down on the person who's been divorced or who has a sexual lifestyle like that or someone who, who has a foul mouth or, or, or someone who, who's just walking in some egregious sin that they've determined to be worse than the others. Meanwhile, they seem to conveniently forget the fact that they treat their spouse like, spouse like trash, that, that they actually use some foul language occasionally, that they don't tithe and they binge watch The Bachelor. You know who you are. <laughs> they, they determine what sins are okay and which ones are not. And conveniently, those sins are the ones that always land them at the top and everybody else at the bottom. That's the thing about pride. It elevates itself and puts everybody else down. But here's the thing about pride. God hates it. <laughs> it's actually a repellent to God. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, God hates pride. He rejects the proud, but he gives his grace to the humble. It's like kryptonite to the presence of Jesus. Anytime we try to draw near to him, but we have pride in our hearts, it's like we can't seem to connect. Sometimes I think we've been praying to the sheetrock and the ceiling, wondering why God doesn't want to meet with us when the question the Holy Spirit is asking is, how's your humility? How are you looking at other people? How are you treating other people? How are you treating your spouse? How are, how are you treating that person that you disagree with? And you, you don't even realize that there's pride in your heart. And I just can't get near to that thing. Pride is a repellent to God. But I'm really grateful, if I could brag on our church for a moment, that this is a chair that generally sits vacant here at the Father's house. I'm really grateful that we exist in a culture that doesn't look disdainfully down on people that are still in process with the Holy Spirit, looks for opportunities to judge and critique. And no, we actually believe what our value says, that you belong in this place before you believe what we believe or before you behave how we behave. And so there is a wide open seat at the table of grace for you. Just come. I'm grateful that I, we are a part of a community of people that understands we're all jacked up. We're all in process. I haven't arrived anywhere yet. And although I might be a few steps ahead of you on the, on the journey, we are all in this process with Jesus called sanctification. And I'm not gonna judge your journey or your pace or any of it. I'm gonna be patient with you. I'm grateful that we're a part of a community where that chair is not generally occupied. 
We have a great church here. But the next chair might be one where there's a lot of, a lot of filled seats. And that is the chair of insecurity. Performance-based Christianity always produces insecurity. It always produces this idea that I'm not enough for God. Performance-based Christianity plants these seeds of doubt in our heart where we begin to wonder, is God's grace truly good enough for me? Am I ever going to amount to what he wants me to amount to? It forgives other people's sins, but it holds our own sins against us. The people sitting in this chair don't seem to know how to let their own failures go. They're, they're constantly insecure. And like the last chair, it can be subtle or it can be overt. They might say things like, gosh, I just need to get my act together. I'd like to get baptized, but I need to clean myself up first. God can never use someone like me because I still have this issue in my life. But often it's not out loud, it's in here. Often it's that inner critic, that self-hatred, that invisible wall that we've imagined separates us from God because of our guilt and our shame. And so we keep a distance because his grace works for them, but for some reason it doesn't work for me. And this chair, it never becomes confident. It lacks the boldness that has been made available to us as sons and daughters. Hebrews chapter four says, come boldly before the throne of grace where you can obtain mercy when you need it most. When do you need it most? Not when you're doing good. Not when you follow the rules. You need grace and mercy when you have face planted in your life. But it's like there's blinders on when we're sitting in this chair and we don't realize that we've been given access to the very presence of Jesus and that boldness has been stripped from us. And so we remain insecure. And like the first one, these two, they share something in common. They place too much faith in ourselves. The first one places too much faith in my own righteousness. The second one places too much faith in my failure. I believe I'm better. I believe I'm worse. And we discredit the sacrifice of Jesus as if it was insufficient to save us from our sins. It's not that they haven't heard the good news. It just feels like it's too good to be true for me. But if I could preach from this chair for just a moment, people spend their lives sitting in this chair. People spend years in broken, dead religious environments, insecure, incapable of approaching God because they never feel like they're enough. But that is a lie from the pit of hell itself. Listen to me today. Jesus did not die on a cross so that you could stay at a distance from him. He did not leave the perfection of heaven and dwell among broken humanity so that we could be insecure about approaching the Father. No, when the veil was torn and he breathed his last, it's so that every person, race, background, whatever the case may be, could walk boldly into the presence of Jesus and say, this is not reserved for a select few any longer that had the right pedigree or had the right lifestyle, but even the broken, even the maimed, even the sinful can come directly into the presence of Jesus and receive forgiveness and healing and grace and everything that we need in Jesus 
Now, there's no reason for us to sit in the insecurity chair. You've got the spirit of God on the inside of you. And that spirit calls out, Abba, Father. He's your father. He is not some angry God at a distance with a baton in his hand ready to take you out because of your sin. He's saying, come son, come daughter. I don't care if you trip on your way to the altar. It's wide open for you. That is the gospel. So don't sit in the insecurity chair. But there's one more, and this one's a big one. The rebellion chair. Performance-based Christianity produces rebellion. When you've been spoon-fed this idea that you have to live by some unattainable standard of holiness in order to be accepted by God, you know what that produces? Rebellion. No one wants to try to live up to that unmeasurable standard. Nobody wants to try to, to be perfect and every time they sin feel guilty. You do that long enough and you're like, deuces, I'm out. I don't wanna be here anymore. Nothing will make you feel like you want nothing to do with God, <laughs> like some standard that man has created for you to live by. And every time they point the finger and say, you're not enough. And you see this play out all the time. I saw this play out as a youth pastor every single year. You'd see these parents that would just choke in their kids, trying to get them to serve Jesus, shoving a bunch of rules down their throat, trying to get them to stay inside this bubble of holiness while they're in high school. And then they graduate from high school and they're like, I'm out. Woo! Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. What is that? That's rebellion. It's, I don't want anything to do with your religion. I don't want anything to do with this God that you keep trying to push on me who seems to be constantly angry at me and judging me. And some of us grew up in those churches. Some of y'all are here right now because you came from those churches. Everything's a sin. Music, sin. Tattoos, sin. Makeup, even though you need it, sin. Come on, how many ladies grateful for makeup today? I'm just kidding. <laughs> Every week, you're a backsliding sinner that needs to get right with God. And you just feel guilty and ashamed and fire and brimstone. And gosh, I don't want to be in that environment. And so we rebel. But here's the thing that happens often. And we see this all the time in our church. We, we saw it today with the baptism. Eventually, people who have the seeds of faith planted in them as children come back to Jesus. Train a child up in the way of the Lord and eventually they're gonna come back to it. They will not depart from it. And even though there was a whole lot of dead religion, there's some Jesus that got in there along the way. And so people come back. But the problem with those who respond in rebellion is that often when they come back, they end up overcorrecting. They, they, they hear about grace and this God that is not like the God that they were sold as a child. And for fear of going back into that dead religious mindset, they overcorrect. Well, there's grace, I'm gonna do whatever I want. I don't have to live by some standard, cool, I will never change, but I'm gonna to go to heaven, right? I, I, I'm gonna never deal with the, the, the sin patterns of my past and I'm, I'm never gonna live a redeemed life. I just, I get to go to heaven for free? Well then cool, I'm gonna live like hell here on earth and just trust that one day I can hand him my get into heaven free card. It's, it's this redemption without repentance. <laughs> It's salvation without surrender. 
it's rebellion being traded in for just another version of rebellion called abuse. But friends, that is not the gospel. The gospel of Jesus is not that he saves you so that you can stay exactly where you're at right now. Yes, he will say, come as you are, but he will not permit you to stay where you are. That's how he works. Come in your brokenness, come in your shame, come in your failure. Yes, it's an even playing field at the foot of the cross, but he loves you way too much to leave you down in the bottom of that ditch. He will reach down there, he will pull you up, and he will begin to redeem you and to sanctify you and make you into a new creation. Come on, Jesus did not just die so that we would be forgiven of our sins and that was it. What kind of God would he be if he forgave us, but we continue to do the same thing over and over and over and over again? He would be a God that is void of power, which is no God at all. No, he actually resurrected from the grave so that you could live a brand new life in him. Second Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, they are a brand new creation. That old jacked up person passed away and there's a brand new person walking with new life in Jesus. That's what's been afforded to us. That's the grace. The grace changes everything. It doesn't allow you to stay where you are. If we bought into a version of grace that simply allows us to come to Jesus and never transform, it's nothing more than idolatry. It's a God of our own making that is void of power and excuses our bad behavior, but that's not Jesus. Jesus empowers us to live new lives. But these are the seats. These are the meaningless grace table name tags. Insecurity, pride, rebellion. And if we find ourselves sitting here, it's time for a new table. <laughs> this is not where you belong. If any of this has resonated with you over the last couple of moments, it's time to pick up your name placard and get over to a different table <laughs> because this is not where you get to live any longer. I believe that by the grace of Jesus, there's some people moving seats today. We're playing musical chairs in the spirit over the next couple of moments. So how do we get to the grace table? How do we get to the grace table? Paul says it like this, and as I say this, I'll invite the band to come up so that we can conclude, or at least give the illusion that we're doing that. <laughs> Galatians 2.21. Oh, excuse me, that's not it. It's somewhere in here. Oh, there it is. Okay, Galatians 2.16. We know that the only way, say only way. Come on, say it like you mean it today. The only way, the only way, the only way, the only way to be justified is by faith. The only way to make it to the grace table is by faith. It is a simple and childlike trust in the fact that my actions, my best day, my obedience, it's still like filthy rags in comparison to God's holiness. No matter how hard I try, I'm never gonna be perfect. But I thank God that he sent Jesus and that Jesus lived the perfect life that I could never live. That he faced every temptation that I face according to Hebrews. And yet in the face of every one of those temptations, he was victorious. Think about that for a moment. Every temptation that you face, everything that trips you up in your journey of faith, Jesus faced it and he was victorious over it. He lived the life that none of us could live, died the death that all of us deserved, so that we could receive the life that none of us deserved. That's the faith, that's the grace. And Paul says that when we have that simple childlike faith, something happens. We are justified. 
That's probably a word you don't use every day in your communication, but it's an incredibly important biblical word. Some preachers and teachers have, have offered this word trick to remind us of the definition of that phrase. Justified means just as if I'd never sinned. Oh, yeah, it's an easy one to remember. But so I was thinking about that definition this week and reading through the Greek. I don't know that that definition in and of itself fully encompasses the gravity of, of this word justification. It's actually even more potent than that. Look at what this word means in the original language. In the Greek, it's the word dikeo, and it means to be declared or rendered righteous. To be declared or rendered righteous. In other words, something that wasn't righteous didn't just become righteous, it was first declared righteous before it became righteous. First he said something and then it became a reality. Let me explain why that's so important for just a moment. Righteousness is what is required for us to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the, that's the price, that's the ticket to get in there. And yet righteous is probably the last word that most of us would use to describe our lives. Hey, give me one word to tell me who you are. Righteous, probably not the word we would use. Why? Because to us, I cannot say that I'm righteous until there's proof by my actions that I'm righteous. But that's the opposite of the definition. The definition tells us that justification means that God said you were righteous and then you became righteous. Oh, you aren't following me yet. Okay, Romans four, Jesus says, or excuse me, Paul says, God has the ability to call those things that are not as though they are. In other words, when God speaks, realities that did not exist suddenly exist. So, so if God was standing in this room, looking at this wall of whatever, and he looked at that orange paint and said, that wall is blue. It doesn't matter that the moment he said it, that wall was orange. The second those words leave his mouth, that wall turns blue. Because God is not a liar. He cannot speak something without it coming to pass. So the moment he opens his mouth, the reality we once saw is shifted and it becomes something different. So if that's the case, let me ask you today, what does God say about your life? Well, if he agrees with you, then you're looking at the evidence of who you used to be and making assessments based on your track record, but that's not how God works. God says, okay, you've placed your faith in the finished work of the cross. You've looked at Jesus and you've said that what he did was enough. Well, in the moment that you put your faith in Jesus Christ, I made a declaration about you. And that declaration is not what you said about yourself. It's not what anybody else has said about you in the past. In one moment, I declare that you are justified. You are righteous. And the moment he makes that declaration, it becomes your reality. It doesn't matter what your reality was like before. It doesn't matter what your past said about you. In one moment, you are transformed because he cannot speak without that becoming your reality. I don't care what you've said about yourself. I don't care what they've said about you. The moment God opened up his mouth and he made a declaration, it became your reality. Justified to be declared and then to be made. And, and you know what happens when God says you're righteous? You get an invitation. 
You're not sitting at the jacked up table in the back with Brad anymore. Come on, you're at the head table with the bride and the groom. You're sitting next to the master. You're at the wedding supper of the lamb, hanging out with Jesus like, yeah, let's go. It's some good wine. It'll be there. I think this is what Jesus is doing today. I think he is pulling out a chair and he's saying, hey, this table is yours if you want it. He is making an invitation to the table of grace. And I wonder if there's anyone here today that is ready to move from one table to the next table today. Close your eyes, bow your heads. I wanna pray. And as I pray, if, if you sense the Holy Spirit inviting you to this table today, I want you to just begin to respond in your heart however the Holy Spirit is leading you to do so. Father, right now we thank you for the invitation. We thank you that there's been a place made at the table for us. And I, I know that I could probably speak for many of us when I say that our lives were a wreck before we came to you. We did not deserve to sit at this table, but freely you invited us. And all we brought was our yes. And you said, that's enough. I pray right now specifically for those that are dealing with insecurity. Those that have that haunting feeling that they are not enough, that they will never be enough, that the master is gonna continue to reject them until they can fix themselves up. I pray you would silence that lie in the name of Jesus today. That they would hear the voice of their father calling them today. Son, daughter, come home. Silence every lie. Let the truth of your word ring in their ears so that when Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday rolls around and that lie begins to creep back up in one moment, they would be reminded by the voice of Jesus, now that's not the table I'm sitting at any longer. I've been given boldness. I've been given confidence as a child of God. And right now, before we conclude, for those that are here and you're saying, Tim, I, I, I do feel that, that chair being pulled out for me. Maybe it was a season where you once sat at the grace table and you've made your way and migrated over to the other side, but maybe you've never sat here before and you, you feel the Holy Spirit drawing you to Jesus right now. I wanna make an opportunity for you to say a very simple prayer with me. Make a commitment to follow Jesus. Most important decision you'll ever make in your life. But as I, as I, I pray this simple prayer, I just, I like to see who I'm praying with. I, I do this every week and it's not to put you on the spot, but if that's you today and you know you need to come home to Jesus, no one's looking around. Would you quickly lift up your hand and look at me so that I know who I'm praying with? Got you, yes, 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 right there in the back. Yeah, right there, bro, right on. Come on, a lot of people say, yeah, right on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hallelujah, okay. You can say this in your heart. You don't need to say it out loud, but just repeat after me. If you wanna mumble on your breath, that's cool too. Say, Jesus, today I give you my life and I thank you for giving yours for mine. Today I make a decision to follow you. I'm tired of sitting at the wrong table. I'm tired of living with insecurity and regret and all the garbage from my past. But today I hand it all over to you and I thank you that you forgive me and that you set my feet on a firm foundation so that I can follow you from this day forward. Help me to be your disciple to live according to your ways and to stay at the table where grace is abundant for me. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, can we just thank God for every one of those praying that prayer this morning? Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. 
And listen, we want to pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.